Hello, welcome to episode 12 of What's Humble Call Lies in Reruns. I'm Mike Lawson. I used to have a weekly storytelling podcast, and now I'm sharing those stories with you here on the Afterthought Media feed. Hello, friends. How you doing? Uh, I got two good stories for you this week. One of them is about a roommate I had and some of the crazy things she did to pay the rent. Uh, but first, let me share with you a story I wrote right as I was leaving uh, Phoenix and moving to California. It was originally published Monday, August 20th of 2012. Here we go. Episode 41. Goodbye to all that. Like a six-year-old on the monkey bars, I've let go of the rung behind me and I'm reaching out toward the rung in front of me. I'm sort of in between, sort of hopeful, sort of excited, and sort of terrified. Hi, my name's Mike Lawson and I tell what someone call lies. Um, I really love telling stories. I love, I love, I love stories. telling, I love telling stories. stories. What some would call lies. 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 Vomit. You lying son of a gun. Kind of creepy son of a bitch. He said. She said. I said. What the hell? Liar, liar, pants on fire. I love your dress. And I'm not making this up. You are a goddamn liar. I'm back, bitches. <laughs> I love telling stories. This podcast is in no particular order, a collection of stories from my life that I retell as accurately as I see fit. When writing this story, I was really inspired by a short essay by Joan Didion called Goodbye to All That, in which she writes that it's easier to see the beginnings of things and harder to see the ends. And this idea so accurately articulates what I'm feeling right now. I'm taking a break from packing today to record this episode. On Wednesday, I'll be moving from Phoenix to San Francisco. In fact, by the time most of you hear this, I'll already be settling in with flowers in my hair. It's easy for me to remember when Phoenix began for me, but I can't lay my finger upon the exact moment it ended, can never cut through the ambiguities and second starts and broken resolves to the exact place on the page where this protagonist is no longer as optimistic as he once was. I moved here in 2007 to be closer to family, and in retrospect in those early days I was much happier. Before I knew about the difference between the streets and the avenues, before I knew about snowbirds, and before I knew what 300 days of sunshine in a year could do to your psyche, your skin, and your car battery. Part of what I want to tell you is how I fell in and fell out of love with a city. How five months becomes five years with the deceptive ease of a film dissolve, for that's how those years appear to me now, in a long sequence of sentimental dissolves and old-fashioned trick shots. The Sky Harbor Airport in triple speed with planes coming and going so quickly you can hardly keep track. I enter the revolving door of the Wells Fargo building downtown in my early 20s and come out a great deal older.
My love for Phoenix started in much the same way that many love affairs begin. I hadn't been touched by a city in this way for years. A city that told me my hair looked lovely. A city that was excited to see me and I was eager to spend time with. I started exploring the streets of Phoenix and in turn found parts of myself that I hadn't known existed, or at least had long forgotten. In these days I would spend hours driving around ASU looking for that sandwich place that someone told me about. I'd walk around downtown with my camera and without a watch, and I would always mention that I was new to town when talking with strangers. It was a celebration of independence, a personal Bastille Day in a way. On a recent trip to Indianapolis, I met a lot of people from all over the country, and when people asked me where I was from, I was kind of stumped. Where am I from? I mean, I live in Phoenix, but the word from indicates a point at which a journey begins. And while the Arizona desert has been my home for the past five years, I think of it more as a temporary resting point, definitely not a place that I would claim to be from. This made me re-examine my relationship with Arizona. It's an unfortunate scenario that I've been in before, standing at the dishwasher, scraping off leftover food into the garbage disposal from a meal that I had cooked, being totally domestic for someone that I thought I had loved, and then I come to. And I look up and I realize that I'm getting yelled at regarding the way that I'm loading the dishes. As if I wanted to cook him dinner in the first place. As if I wanted to do his dishes. As if I had voluntarily signed up to be his housewife. It's not long before I started getting annoyed by all of his idiosyncrasies. Did you really have to correct the grammar of that Walmart cashier? Or, I don't really care about the person that was annoying at the HOA meeting. And the next thing you know, he's hooking up with strangers he met on the internet, and I'm alone, overanalyzing everything that I had said that brought me to this point. Arizona is a state of refugees, a steady stream of -of out-of-towners coming to find the love that I was so excited about five years ago, and I'll be honest, I get jealous. When I see new people enjoying Phoenix, I get jealous. When I see people tweeting the photos of the pretty sunsets or posting Facebook pictures of some of the local food trucks, I look back and I remember when I was in love like that. It's a bit like looking through the wedding album of a past lover. Glad he's moved on and is happy, but always aware of the fact that one thing is missing in all of the photos. You. I've been forever changed by my time here, and I don't know if given the chance I would trade it. Summer rain will never be the same for me. Mexican food will never be the same for me. And in a strange way, I've come to understand the beauty of a day when the temperature hits 112 degrees. I don't know exactly when I fell out of love with this city. 
Was it that day at the dishwasher? Was I ever really in love? Who knows? But eventually there were certain parts of the city I would avoid. I can't bear the Scottsdale nightlife because the grown-up ASU frat bro crowd makes some Veblen-esque gorge rise in my throat. I can't go to the Phoenix Farmer's Market on weekends or to the city of Chandler for any reason whatsoever. One day I can't go past 3rd Avenue. The next day it's north of Alma School. Living in a relationship like this leads to despair. So I'm packing up my things, my clothes, my dishes, and my memories of driving through the tunnel on the 10 freeway between 7th Street and 7th Avenue, and I'm leaving. California or bust. Right, so now I live in California, and all of the stories I'll tell from here on out were written and recorded here. Uh, in fact, this next story I very specifically remember writing uh, and recording when I was living in the houseboat of a friend of Joe Batanz's up in Sausalito, California. It was the first place I lived when I moved to California, uh, moved back to California. And um, this story is called The Roommate, and it was originally recorded on Tuesday, August 28th of 2012. Here you go. I consider myself to be a really good roommate. I keep to myself. I'm very clean. I can tolerate quite a bit. And I don't mind occasionally cleaning up messes that I didn't make. For me, the list of house rules that I have is quite simple. Rule number one, pay your shit on time. And that's about it. The primary reason for this rule has less to do with late fees, credit ratings, and other penalties, and more to do with my own anxiety. I can't sleep knowing that the cable bill is due on Friday, yet was mailed on Wednesday. In the beginning of 2001, I moved in with Cindy, who I talk a lot about in different episodes, especially episode 6, when I explain how I killed a man. And Cindy and I had this mutual friend named Laura. Laura was, well, I guess she still is, quite an amazing person. Where I was reserved and hesitant, she was bold and adventurous. She spent a lot of time at our place since she was living with her dad and a bitch of a stepmom. And we would make bad paintings together, we'd eat bad food together, and we would watch bad television together. Laura pushed me out of my bedroom. 2 a.m. trips to the Jack in the Box that would turn into hour-long city safaris where we would end up behind the Ralph's grocery store tying a dozen milk crates to the top of her car. She's one of the few people that could have called me on a Wednesday afternoon and said, let's go get something pierced after dinner. And I would respond, who's driving? So when her dad suddenly kicked her out of the house, she didn't even have to ask. Cindy and I started moving furniture and we created a sort of bedroom in our living room for her. At that time, Laura was working at Disneyland and her salary wasn't huge, 
but she did say she would contribute her fair share to our rent and household expenses. Since she had already spent so much of her time at our place, having her move in was really a small change. She just started paying rent. adventures continued. A trip to Walmart at midnight would conclude with the two of us in a costume and a newly purchased betta fish named Frank. A drive to our friend's house in Fullerton included a detour to that creepy park where Harbor Boulevard splits into Brea Boulevard so we could stake out the bathroom and giggles we watched the men cruising for sex. This was in 2001 so it was back before AOL was a joke and Laura spent a lot of her free time on our computer. We all did, really. She came to me one evening with a piece of junk mail that she had written on with a Sharpie marker. I met this guy in chat, she said, and I'm going to meet him. The junk mail had the man's screen name, his phone number, and his address. Are you sure this is safe? I asked her. You can take the boy out of his shell, but you can't take the innate prudishness out of the boy. She assured me that she wouldn't be a couple of hours, and she left. I sat up waiting for her to return, running different scenarios over and over in my head like a choose-your-own-adventure book from my childhood. If Laura never returns and you call the police, turn to page 77. If Laura never returns and you decide to go to the address on the junk mail, turn to page 103. Luckily for me, Laura showed up within the two-hour time frame, and she was in a very good mood. Get dressed, she said. We're going out. And before long, we were walking up a dirt trail and climbing through a hole in a chain-linked fence, sitting on a hill, watching the fireworks from Disneyland. I made a hundred bucks tonight, she said. What? How? That guy I met in the chat. He asked me to come over and give him a massage, and he said he would pay me. A hundred dollars? You're not even a trained masseuse, I reminded her, in case she forgot. Well, the kind of massage he wanted is difficult to get from a trained masseuse, she said, looking straight ahead at the fireworks in the distance. Eventually, Laura confessed that she was doing a little more than just massaging these guys. She quit her legal job, she got a new cell phone just for her business, and she was going out on two or three calls a night. And I have no real problem with this. I didn't have a problem then either. Sure, what she was doing was illegal, but who's the victim here? She was providing a, a service to men that wanted to pay for this service. She promised me that she was always safe, and aside from the risk involved with meeting horny strangers, this was a pretty good job for her.
was pulling in almost 200 bucks a day, sometimes more, yet she was only working two or three hours a night. The dangerous combination of excess money and excess free time leads many towards drugs, and guess what happened to Laura? Coke? Nope. Heroin? Worse. Meth? Speed? PCP? Uh-uh. Mori Povich and Oprah. TV talk shows consumed Laura's afternoons, as Cindy and I spent 10 hours at her legal jobs making a fraction of the money Laura was. I loved the girl, but we were getting to a point where she could afford her own apartment. The only problem that she had is that it's kind of difficult to show pay stubs to a landlord with the type of job that Laura had. We weren't really pressuring Laura to move out, but all of us knew that we were getting to the point where she should be pushed from our nest. One afternoon at work, I wasn't feeling well, and I decided to take a half day. When I got to the apartment, the front door was unlocked, but the apartment appeared to be empty. I put my things on the kitchen table and got a glass of water. I was surprised when I walked to my bedroom that the door was closed and locked, and I could hear La Isla Bonita faintly playing inside. Since I had the master bedroom, I knew that it was possible that Laura who thought she'd be alone for five or six more hours, was taking a shower and just closed my bedroom door. I parked myself on the couch and waited for her to come out. And when she did finally emerge, she was shocked to see me. She was shocked and not alone. There was a man with her, a 35-year-old guy that was decent-looking, wearing an ugly fleece sweater and jeans that didn't complement his figure. When the guy saw me, he looked at Laura as if to say, who's this guy? And he quickly left. After a little back and forth, Laura did finally admit that the guy she was locked into my bedroom with was a client. And this incident was the straw that broke the generous prostitute accepting camel's back. I asked Laura to move out. After she moved out, I saw less and less of her. Telling someone they can no longer live with you can kind of taint a friendship. And because of this, I did add one more rule to my list for new roommates. Under no circumstances can you use my bed to fuck. I do have to hand it to Laura, though. She did always pay her rent on time. Done. I just shared two stories with you. And believe it or not, I've got two more to share if you want to come back next episode. Uh, the stories I want to share next time are called The Fools of April, which that one's about a practical joke gone too far. And then another one which is called My Options, and that's about a time when I kind of painted myself into a corner. Uh, come back and hear them both. They're both pretty good. See you then. Bye-bye. I like to eat pizza.